0: Welcome to Haunting History, the podcast that reaches back into the past for the events that shocked everyone. Tales of true crime, mystery, and the macabre. And when we're lucky, the stories were history and the people who lived it and the paranormal meet. Now, who doesn't live a good ghost story, right? Welcome back to Haunting History Podcast. I'm your host, Kat, and joining me is my forever co host, Haley. Hi. Today we are on part two of Lizzie Borden, the trial. And there's a lot of information to cover, so I'm just going to dive right in today. Where we left off on part one was that Lizzie was arrested on August 11th. On August 22nd, she had to return to the Fall River courtroom for a preliminary hearing, at the end of which Judge Josiah Blaisdell pronounced her in a quote, probably guilty, and ordered her to face a grand jury Impossible charges for the murder of her parents. In November, so she went back to jail from August 22nd to November, and then in November the grand jury met. After first refusing to issue an indictment, the jury then reconvened and heard new evidence from Alice Russell, which is not new to us because I had told you in the first episode that Alice Russell was Lizzie's friend who saw her burning the dress. Do you remember that, Haley? Yeah, I do. She had stayed with the two Borden sisters following the murder. She reiterated that um, to the grand jurors that she had witnessed Lizzie Lizzie burning the blue dress in a kitchen fire because Lizzie had explained that there was old paint on it. Coupled with the earlier testimony from Bridget that Lizzie had been wearing a blue dress on the morning of the murders, the evidence was enough to convince grand jurors to indict Lizzie for the murder. Um, Alice Russell's testimony was also enough to convince the Borden sisters to to stop talking to her. They're no longer friends after that. The Commonwealth represented by prosecutor Hosea Knowlton had the task of building a case against Lizzie. When Lizzie, when he had finished his presentation to the grand jury, he surprisingly, and this isn't typically happen, invited the defense attorney to present a case for the defense. This isn't something that was normally done in Massachusetts. So, basically what was happening was that the trial was actually being conducted before the grand jury. A lot of people saw this as a chance that the charge against Lizzie might actually be dropped, but it wasn't. The police ended up charging Lizzie with the murder of her father and her stepmother. They thought that Lizzie's motive was either, and this is kind of ridiculous, and I think you'll agree, they thought that Lizzie's motive was a resentment related to her mom dying and then Abby coming in and being her new mom.
1: Yeah, I don't... Why would she need
0: to kill her dad, Well, Well, not only that, it was... She was six when Abby came into her life. Yeah. She didn't even know her mom. Her mom died when she was less than three. Yeah. So I think that is a... I don't, I don't agree with the police with that. The second reason, and this is the more reasonable reason, is that she had a desire to collect her father's um, fortune, which we all know money is the root of all evil. The police didn't... Weirdly enough, though... Try to implicate Emma, her sister. Because Emma had the same motive that Lizzie would have if it was about money. And technically, Emma could have come back from where she was visiting, committed the murders, and left again. Because the one thing that I don't think I talked about in the first episode, and remind me if I did because I can't remember, Emma was notified that her dad and her stepmom were murdered. She did not catch the next train. Or the next train. Or the next one. She didn't get on a train until the fifth one later to come back home. What was Emma doing? And
1: why did she wait so long? So you're saying she could have not been there to catch it?
0: Technically, I think that should be one of the theories. I don't know that it really is one of the biggest conspiracy theories out there. But why didn't the police look at that? The fact that she didn't rush back. Her dad was murdered. Yeah. Why didn't she rush back? And if the police were so hell bent on making on pointing the finger at Lizzie. Why didn't they point the finger also at Emma? Yeah, I don't know. So Lizzie Borden's trial started on June 5th, 1893. She was in jail for 10 whole months. And the one thing I want to mention to you is that we talk about Taunton during, um, I don't remember what episode it is, but the lady killers episode. And I had said that I had never heard that Lizzie was at Taunton state hospital. But apparently she was somewhere on the grounds. She wasn't in the hospital with the patients, but she was somewhere on the Taunton State Hospital grounds, I recently found out. So she was in jail. She was at Taunton for 10 months in jail. And five days before the trial, which I thought this was really interesting, the trial began on June 5th. On June 1st, another axe murder occurred in Fall Rivers, and this time the victim was Bertha Manchester, who was found hacked to death in her kitchen and the similarities between the Manchester murder and the Bordens murder were striking and the jurors knew about this. So I think the jury sort of went in with the idea that it it happened again. Do you know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, so like they're thinking,
0: hey, maybe Lizzie really didn't do this. right? Um, judges Caleb Blodgett, Justin Dewey, and Robert Mason. At the time, there were three judges that would preside over a trial a trial the prosecutors were Josiah Knowlton which I said and William Moody Knowlton was the more experienced attorney but he had been feeling ill and he brought Moody along to co-counsel Lizzie's defense attorneys were Andrew Jennings and George Robinson Robinson was a particularly distinguished lawyer had he had been the governor of Massachusetts Moody opened the prosecutor's case by describing the facts to the jury and preparing them to accept the idea that a woman could have committed such a horrible crime. Now, this is part of the problem. Most people didn't believe that a woman could have done what happened to Abby and Andrew. They find it hard to believe. Is that something do you think they would find hard to believe now?
1: I think it would still be questioned, but not in the same way. That they did back in 1893. Yeah, like I still think people don't think women kill people. But I don't think to the severity of that so our thing. next
0: episode is going to be well, we already did the lady Killers episode in from yeah. history, uh-huh. but I mean, I guess it's just not your first thought, especially something so violent, yeah, like maybe poison or something. The prosecutor started the case by saying, and this is a quote, upon the fourth day of August of the last year, an old man and woman, husband and wife, each without a known enemy in the world, in their own home. Upon a frequented street in the most populous city in this county, under the light of day and in the midst of activities, were first one, then after an interval of an hour, another severely killed by an unlawful human agency. Today, a woman of good position, unquestioned character, a member of the Christian church and active in good works, the daughter of one of the victims, is at the bar of this court, accused by the grand jury of this county of these crimes. And then he presented, he said three things. First, that Lizzie was predisposed to murder her father and stepmother because of their animosity toward each other. That second, she had planned the murder and carried it out. And third, that her behavior and contradictory testimony, I think I mentioned in the first episode how she was on morphine. So she contradicted herself. He used that as the three reasons that that she did it. Could be guilty
1: for... Right. Right.
0: That she hated her parents. Second, that she had actually planned the murder and carried it out. And third, that her behavior and her contradictory testimony um, after the fact was not that of an innocent person is what he said. He did an excellent job and many have regarded him as the most competent attorney that was in the case, that was involved in the case, both sides. At one point, he threw a dress on the prosecution table that he had planned to admit into evidence When he did it, the tissue, there was, um, I think I said in the first episode that they had taken the skulls and took the skin off and brought the skulls into court.
1: You didn't say that in the first episode, but you did say that there, the bodies were buried without the heads. Okay.
0: So what they did was they took the heads and took all the skin off and preserved the skulls so that they could use them during the trial to show the hatchet marks.
1: That's gross, but it makes sense.
0: All right? And so they had them sitting on the table, and they were just covered with tissue. And when he, he, he had the dress, or the what, a dress that he was using in the, in the trial, and he threw it on the table, and the tissue that was covering the skull of Andrew Borden kind of fluttered away, and Lizzie slid, slid out of her trail, chair into a dead faint. Like, lost it which they shouldn't have had her. They shouldn't have had that in there. Anyways, the opening statement of Lizzie's lawyer, who was Andrew Jennings went like this and I'm going to be reading this. So in case you didn't know the last time I was reading it, I'm reading it now. May it please your honors, Mr. Foreman and gentlemen of the jury. I want to make a personal allusion before referring directly to the case. One of the victims of the murder charged in this indictment was for many years, my client and my personal friend. I had known him since my boyhood. I had known his oldest daughter for the same length of time, and I want to say right here and now, if I manifest more feeling than perhaps you think is necessary in making an opening statement for the defense, in this case, you will ascribe it to that cause. The counsel, Mr. Foreman and gentlemen, does not cease to be a man when he becomes a lawyer. Fact and fiction have furnished many extraordinary examples of a crime that has shocked the feelings and staggered the reason of men but I think no one of them has ever surpassed in its mystery, the case that you are now considering the brutal character of the wounds is only equaled by the audacity by the time and the place chosen and Mr. Foreman and gentlemen, it needed, but the accusation of the youngest daughter of one of the victims to make this act as it would seem to most men of an insane person or being a young woman, 32 years of age up to the time of spotless character and reputation who had spent her life nearly in in that immediate neighborhood, who had moved in and out of that old house for 20 or 21 years, living there with her father and with her stepmother and her sister. This crime that shocked the whole civilized world, Mr. Foreman and gentlemen, seemed from the very first to be laid at her door by those who represented the government in this investigation. We shall show you that this young woman, as I have said, had apparently led an honorable spotless life, She was a member of the church. She was interested in church matters. She was connected with various organizations for charitable work. She was ever ready to help in any good thing, in any good deed, and yet, for some reason or other, the government in its investigation seemed to fasten this crime upon her. A prominent point of discussion in the trial with the hatchet head found in the basement, which was not convincingly demonstrated by the prosecution to be the murder weapon, a prominent discussion in the trial or the coverage of it was that the hatchet had found in the basement was not convincingly demonstrated by the prosecution to be the murder weapon. Prosecutors argued that the killer had removed the handle because it would have been covered in blood. Obviously one officer testified that the ratchet, the, I keep wanting to say ratchet instead of hatchet, hatchet handle had been found near the hatchet head, but another officer actually contradicted what he said. And then no bloody clothing was found at the scene. Russell testified that on August 8th, she had witnessed um, Borden burning the dress on the kitchen stove. And um, during the course of the trial, defense never attempted to challenge this claim, whether or not there was paint on the dress or that. I mean, they kind of just took Alice's word for it, that this is what happened. They didn't even ask Emma about it during the trial, I guess. Lizzie Borden's presence in the home was also a point of dispute during the trial. According to testimony, Sullivan entered the second floor of the home at around 10.58 and left Lizzie and her father downstairs. Lizzie told several people that at this time she went into the barn and was not in the house for 20 minutes or possibly half an hour. And then a gentleman named Hyman Lubinsky testified for the defense that he saw Lizzie Borden leaving the barn at 11.03 and then a Charles Gardner confirmed the time. At 11.10, Lizzie called Sullivan downstairs told her that Andrew had been murdered in order not to enter the room. Instead, she sent, like I had said in the first episode, she sent for, um, Bridget to go get the doctor across the street. The the prosecution had nine witnesses, which was Robert V. Morse, Bridget Sullivan, obviously, Dr. Seabury Bowen, which um, Dr. Bowen was the one who had done the autopsies. And I don't think I mentioned this in the... Dr. Bowen is the doctor across the street, I'm sorry. They did the autopsies on the dining room table in the house. Did I yeah, say that? you did say that. Ugh. It's gross. Um Adelaide Churchill was also for the prosecution. She was the neighbor who asked if everything was okay. Obviously, Alice Russell, a Dr. William Dolan, Dr. Edward Wood, and a John Dr. John Coughlin. And then another woman named Anna Reagan. She was um she was she worked at the jail where Lizzie stayed. I'm going to read her, st- her testimony. She said, I am the matron of the Fall River Police Station. The prisoner was in my charge for nine or ten days. She occupied my own room. On August 24th, Miss Emma Borden came to see her sister. It was about 20 minutes to nine in the morning and I was tidying up the room. I let her in and she spoke to her sister Lizzie and I left the two women talking together. I went into the toilet room f- about four feet from where Miss Lizzie Borden was lying on the couch. And I heard very loud talk. I came to my door and it was Miss Lizzie Borden. She was lying on her left side and her sister Emma was talking to her and bending right over her. And Lizzie says, Emma, Emma, you have gave me away, haven't you? She says, no, Lizzie, I have not. You have, she says, and I will let you see I won't give in one inch. And she sat right up and put up her fingers and stood in the doorway looking at them both. Lizzie Borden then lay right back down on the couch on her left side and faced out the window and closed her eyes. Miss Emma got a chair and sat right down beside her sister. They sat there until Mr. Jennings came to my door somewhere about 11 o'clock. Miss Lizzie did not speak to her sister nor turn to face her anymore that afternoon. So they used, they, they tried to imply with this that this woman overheard Emma trying to convince Lizzie of something, like confess or something, and that Lizzie was mad at her for like giving her up. Basically, uh, it clearly it doesn't it really doesn't work, obviously. But this woman, that's what that woman testified. Crucial to the prosecution in the case was um, um they had to prove a motive that Lizzie committed the murders. They had thought they had done this by the number using a number of witnesses who testified. Lizzie's dislike of her stepmother and her complaints about her father being frugal. Like I said, the prosecution also tried to establish that, um, Andrew was writing a new will and that he was planning to leave Emma and Lizzie with very little money and leave the majority of the money to Abby. One of the witnesses called to establish that was John Morse, the uncle who first said that Andrew discussed a new will with him And then later recanted and said he never told him anything about a will. The prosecution then tried to prove Lizzie that her strange behavior before and after the events, like she was in the barn, but they didn't see any dust in the barn or any dust moved in the barn and her burning the dress. And the thing about the dress, the dress was probably the most incriminating thing that they had against Lizzie. They knew that if she had committed the murders the way that they had happened, that she would have been covered in blood. And they had different theories of how she could have maybe worn a smock or, like I had said earlier, her dad's overcoat. Um, but she would have had some kind of, it still wouldn't have protected her completely where she would be walking around in the exact same dress. I mean, she did end up changing dresses after she went upstairs, but she was wearing the blue dress.
1: But it's not just the dress, though. It's like her hair. Right. And her arms in her and her face. Hats. Right. And it, seems like it would be more noticeable in other aspects.
0: Well, they had another theory that Lizzie got naked and committed the murders naked.
1: Still, that's her hair, her face.
0: Well, after Abby, she would have had plenty of time to clean up. It was after Andrew that she wouldn't have been able to do that. Yeah. For the, for the defense, the, after the opening statement, they had called, they had, I believe only four witnesses, Uh, Dr. Benjamin Handy testified that, and this is a quote, I'm a physician and have been practicing medicine in Fall River for nearly 20 years. I went by the Borden house on the morning of the murders at 9 o'clock and again a little after 1030. Saw a medium-sized man of very pale complexion with his eyes fixed on the sidewalk. He was passing slowly towards the south. He was paler than common and acting strangely. I turned in my carriage to look at him. Never having seen him before. Had a light suit of clothes, collar, and necktie. Have searched for him since. Been to the police station to look at various persons, but i have never seen the young man since. So clearly what the defense was trying to do was to give reasonable doubt that put in the minds of the jurors that there were other people seen because they cross-examined him and he reiterated what he'd said and he said that the man was walking very slowly, scarcely moving, He was agitated or weak, staggering or confused or something of the kind, did not appear intoxicated, seemed mentally agitated, showed this by intense expression on his face. I think I had seen him on the previous day. He did not stagger. I did not mean to say he staggered. He didn't. His body oscillated. He did not appear intoxicated. I know the defendant. I had a cottage at Marion at which she was expected. So he's basically putting a thought in their mind that there was another person that could have done it and then hyman Lubinsky, one of the other witnesses for the defense said that i am an ice cream peddler working for mr wilkinson of 42 north main street i pedal ice cream by the team i.e it's a, which is a drive wa- drive wagon a wagon with ice cream on it on the day of the murder i left the stables a few minutes after 11 and drove by the borden house i saw a lady come out the way from the barn right to the back part of the house, the North side stairs. She had on a dark colored dress, nothing on her head was walking very slow. I didn't see her go into the house. I've seen the servant at that house and delivered ice cream there two to three weeks earlier. This woman was not the servant. So he's basically saying that he did see Emma. I mean, sorry, did see Lizzie outside coming from the barn at the exact time that she claims that she was. Um, They also had Emma Borden on the stand And then they had a man named Joseph LeMay who said that he testified on the 16th day of August that he was at his farm north of City Hall. While traveling into the woods for the purpose of cutting poles, he reached a turn in the road. He heard the words, poor Mrs. Borden, repeated, repeated three times. He saw a man sitting on a rock behind a wall in some brushwood. He tried to speak to the man in French twice, but received no answer. On speaking him to him the second time, the man got up with a hatchet at his side and shook it at him. He stepped back and put his own axe up in a defense against the man, and they remained in that position for a few minutes. The man turned, leaped over the wall, and disappeared into the woods. And he said that he notified the police the same evening that this happened. So two of the witnesses claimed to, and it could have been the same man even, claimed to have seen someone else that could have done the murders, right? The trial itself lasted 14 days, and news of it filled every front paper, front page of every major newspaper in the country between something like 30 to 40 reporters from Boston New York um, were in the courtroom every single day. This is how big it was. The trial had begun on June 5th. and There was a day to select the jury, and the jury consisted of 12 middle-aged farmers and tradesmen. The prosecution spent the next seven days putting their case together, and the defense only used two. The, th- the other thing is, too, is that um, one of the attorneys that was supposed to represent the, the state of Massachusetts, he was the attorney general, and he backed out at the last minute. That's why this other attorney got it, because of, Lizzie had so many supporters and particularly women's group and religious organizations. And, like, none of the attorneys wanted to prosecute her. Which you rarely, rarely ever hear a, about. That there were people that were... You always hear, like, the song, the nursery rhyme. Or no, I keep calling it a nursery rhyme. It's not a nursery rhyme. The 41...
1: The creepy song.
0: Yeah, the creepy song. Um, the Dirge. I don't... It's called something. I wish I would have figured it out and before we recorded this again. But they... Um, you always hear about that, but you didn't. You never hear that there were groups picketing religious organizations and women's groups, like picketing, saying to let Lizzie go, that believe that she was innocent. On Saturday, June tenth, the prosecution attempted to enter uh, Lizzie's testimony from the inquest into the record. The defense, of course, objected because at the inquest she had been given um, regular doses of morphine to cause her to calm her nerves. And her testimony was probably affected by that. Her behavior was erratic. She often refused to answer a question, even if, the, even if the question was going to be helpful to her in the end. She didn't answer it. She contradicted herself. She gave different accounts. She claims to have been in the kitchen reading a magazine when her father arrived home. Then she said she was in the dining room ironing. And then she said that she was coming down the stairs. She also claimed to have removed her father's boots and put slippers on him when there's a million pictures of the murder scene, he's not wearing slippers, he's wearing his boots. So the jury was withdrawn so the lawyers could argue out, argue whether her testimony from the inquest could be included. It would have been terribly damaging to Lizzie had they used her testimony. They ended up, the three judge panel excluded it and said it was contradictory and they wouldn't use it at the trial and then on June fourteenth, the prosecution called Eli Bentz, the drugstore clerk, to stand to the stand. Do you remember the one who said that she was trying to buy poison? Yeah. The judges the defense objected to the testimony as irrelevant and basically pointless because it has nothing to do with the murder. And the judges sustained the objection. The they said that Lizzie's attempt to buy poison was thrown out for it didn't have anything to do with it. The second reason, and this is, I found this in a little tiny thing on a diff, a million different pages, but this is what I saw too, is that he never saw Lizzie till the trial. When he told the police that was Lizzie that came in, the police took him into the front parlor of the Borden house and let him hear Lizzie talking in the kitchen, and that's how he identified Lizzie Borden.
1: So he never actually saw her. He saw
0: her. He claims to have seen her in the drugstore. No, but I'm saying. But when he pointed her out, no, he didn't see her. He only heard her voice.
1: Yeah.
0: I don't. Yeah, I'm kind of glad they threw that part out. Yeah. The prosecution had called several witnesses, like I said, including Dr. Dolan. Um, One of them had produced a skull of Andrew Borden to show how the blows had been struck. The thing is, it kind of backfired on them because the way that he showed the striking points, like hair whoever it is, like if someone was killing them, anybody sitting in that courtroom would have realized she would have been covered in blood. And there was no one that testified that Lizzie had any blood on her. No one. Even the dress burning thing. Alice says she was burning a dress and and Lizzie showed her paint on the dress. No one saw any blood on any dress, period. Even Alice. Yeah. So... Lizzie's defense counsel used only those two days, like I said, to present their case. And for the most part, the defense only offered witnesses that could either collaborate Lizzie's story or who could provide alternate possibilities as to who the killer might be. The testimony of various witnesses was meant to do little, but provide reasonable doubt about Lizzie being guilty. On Monday, June 19th, Robinson delivered his closing arguments. Knowlton began his closing arguments for the prosecution next. He completed them on the following day. The judges then asked Lizzie if she had anything to say for herself, and she spoke for the only time during the trial by saying, I am innocent. I leave it to my counsel to speak for me. Instructions were then given to the jury, and they left to deliberate over the verdict.
1: So how many days was the trial?
0: Total of 15 days.
1: 15 days seems long. Is that long for a trial?
0: Well, I think uh, murder trials typically last three to four days, but a really good example, and this this case has been compared to this case numerous times is O.J. Simpson's trial was 11 months.
1: Wow. So it just kind of depends on what evidence and stuff. and The dramatics of it. Right.
0: A little over an hour later, the jury returned with its verdict. Lizzie Borden was found not guilty. Public opinion by this time, it was a feeling that the police and the courts had persecuted Lizzie long enough. Upon exiting the courthouse, she told reporters she was, quote, the happiest woman in the world, unquote. Thank you for listening to this episode of Haunting History Podcast. Be sure to like, follow, and comment on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Haunting History Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to all your favorites. Visit our website at HauntingHistoryPodcast.com for more information on each episode. Until next time, I'm Kat, and remember, the living are far scarier than any ghost.